Hi, you're listening to Smart Casual, a fashion podcast by two women who have a lot of feelings about clothes. I'm Amy Mai. And I'm Emma Doe. Today we're joined by ethical fashion expert Sigrid McCarthy from Intent Journal. We ended up talking to Sigrid for quite a while when she came into the studio, so for easy listening we split this episode into two parts. In the first part, we're discussing why ethical fashion looks the way it does, and we'll delve into why it's alienating a portion of conscious consumers. In the next part, we'll get to all the different ways you can shop ethically and brief you in on how you can arm yourself with the knowledge to cut through all that greenwashing. If you've been shopping around for clothes from responsible and socially conscious fashion brands, you might be wondering why does it all kind of look similar and why does it seem so pricey? But before we get into answering that question, let's define what exactly ethical and sustainable means in a fashion context. So ethical and sustainable are two terms that get thrown around a lot these days. Brands are actively marketing that they are ethical because they know that now people care and especially following Rana Plaza where thousands of Bangladeshi garment workers lost their lives when their factory collapsed. Ethical and sustainable clothing should be produced fairly and with regard to minimising environmental impact. For a brand to describe themselves as such, they need to be committed to paying their employees correctly and they need to be committed to reducing waste in the production of their garments. There are really very few brands out there that are 100% ethical and 100% sustainable, but the golden standard in ethics would mean that you can confirm that absolutely everyone in your supply chain was paid correctly and had good working conditions. So that goes right back to the farmers growing the cotton, to the people processing that cotton and spinning it into fibre, to the people working at the fabric mills, making that fibre into material and cloth, and over to the transport drivers, the maker who sits there and sews the fabric into a garment. So when you think about it, what you're wearing has passed through so many hands and you have to think about whether all these people were paid decently or at the very least a living wage. How long were they working for in their day? Did they have good working hours? There's just so much to think about in the whole fashion supply chain. Right, and ethics is only half of the story and sustainability is a lot trickier to define and achieve, um, not just in the context of fashion but in like all industries. To be 100% sustainable, clothes could be produced in a closed-loop system that is all the components that make up the garment, the fabric, like the zippers, the buttons... The thread um, could be made from materials that are able to be recycled, like properly disposed of or properly taken apart and put back together again once the garment has fully completed its cycle. So from a consumer's perspective, once you're finished with wearing the garment or once you no longer want to wear it, you can properly take it back to the designer or to a recycling facility and they can recapture those materials and turn it into something new. Further on, garments would also need to be designed with uh, maximum usability in mind. So if you think how Apple basically designs things to break within a few years, garments would also uh, need to be designed to last for many, many years, ideally for your own full lifespan and using materials that have as minimal impact on our natural resources as possible. 
this is really hard to achieve across a brand's entire supply chain, not just from a technological perspective, but also a cost perspective. There's another part of sustainability, which is about designing with a zero waste um, aspect in mind. So designers, for example, instead of buying completely new fabric for a new collection, they could hunt around for dead stock, which is overproduced fabric that that a company might have overordered and um, they no longer need or um, or finding uh, vintage fabrics that have just um, been collecting dust somewhere in some factory. Um, and sustainability could also mean choosing factory processes that use less electricity or water in the production because if you dye clothing that requires mass amounts of water. So there are designers out there that are looking at ways in which they can minimise their water usage. So sustainability is such a broad, broad picture and there's so many boxes to tick. Try and dig a little deeper and find out exactly how that brand defines sustainable for themselves and what boxes they are ticking. So we've got a special guest on our show today to discuss fashion ethics and sustainability. We've got Sigrid McCarthy here with us. Sigrid is the editor-in-chief and founder of Intent Journal, which is an online publication that encourages readers to think a little deeper about their relationship to fashion. Um, When she's not working on Intent by night, Sigrid's day job is in communications at Ethical Clothing Australia. So if you don't already know, ECA is an accreditation body that ensures Australian clothing and textile businesses are legally compliant through their local supply chain. So basically, manufacturing businesses that do all the right things in their supply chain can apply to get an official stamp of approval, saying that they are indeed being ethical. So Amy and I were really keen to bring you in today for a discussion because you've been working in the ethical fashion space for quite some time now. Mm-hmm. Um, before Intent, you were co-editing an, a different magazine called Hessian, which was a magazine focused on ethical clothing. And you've watched this movement change and evolve over time, especially with local fashion. So I want to start by asking, why do you think it's only now that ethics and sustainability has become a concern for consumers? Why weren't we seeing this kind of widespread consciousness in that part of fashion beforehand? Yeah, I think there's a few different reasons. A big one was the Rana Plaza garment factory collapse, which happened, I think this is its fifth anniversary. Um, It was 2013. That was one of those things that people just couldn't ignore. You would have to be living under under a rock to not have heard about it. And I think that kind of shook not just the industry, but consumers in general, seeing, you know, some of the tragic footage of people under the rubble, people who were killed in a knowingly unsafe building. So um, there's that. And there's also the sort of movements just take time. And it's always been a conversation, but it's been a lot more niche previously with people who naturally had an interest in the environment, an interest in social justice um, and they look at that in terms of every facet of their daily life, whether it's food or what they're wearing, what kind of insurance they get, where they're lodging their superannuation. So fashion has just kind of inevitably become a stronger conversation among more consumers, which is obviously a great thing because I think people forget that it's something that they um, engage in every single day. 
Um, we often talk about fashion being a great vehicle for self-expression and mm -hmm. experimentation, and that's the dream that the fashion industry kind of sells. It's a bit of escapism and fun. But when it comes to, I guess, the ethical fashion scene in Melbourne, the messaging kind of encourages consumers to buy simple, classic pieces that yeah. won't go out of style. But there's definitely a large section of the market that still want to buy you know, styles and um, you know prints and cuts they feel excited about yeah. and that isn't always going to be a classic white shirt or like navy slim trousers. How do you think that ethical fashion can keep people being excited to buy or do you think that the message needs to shift or evolve a little bit? I think there definitely is a um, perhaps a misconception that in order to be sustainable, you need to adopt the classic white shirt, the classic black dress and be in neutral tones and look like you live in Copenhagen. And it is a problem because it excludes um, a lot of people out there who like to express themselves through vibrant patterns and colours and, you know, wild silhouettes. I think in order for it to be an inclusive um, movement, we need to acknowledge the various different ways that you can actually engage in this movement. And it's not necessarily buying a really well-made shirt that you can wear over and over and it's part of your curated wardrobe or personal uniform. While that is one part, one way that you can engage in this movement, there's also a whole lot of really fun ways of being engaged, whether it's op shopping and only buying secondhand or buying from a curated consignment store or... I think increasingly we're going to see clothing libraries where people realise that there's a great opportunity to share clothing and to rent clothing. You don't necessarily right. need to own it. Mm -hmm. And so you can have that crazy, vibrant 60s shift dress just for that one event or, you know, have it until you realise that it's no longer a reflection of your style and you want to move on to something else. So there are ways of being ethical and being sustainable without looking like you have um, a very muted and um, unexciting sense of style. Fashion library sounds very exciting and amazing yeah, for most people. I would love Intent Journal to launch one, actually. It's something that we're thinking about doing just because I, I think it also ties into that misconception that the ethical fashion movement is an elitist movement and that people can't engage in it because they don't have a certain price point that's available to them. So renting and being able to go to a library or, or something of that nature means that you can capture a much larger demographic and you're not just preaching to the privileged folk. Um, it's really important that everyone feels like they can access clothing that has been made mindfully and that is made to last. So just touching upon what Amy said before about there being this perception that ethical fashion is all classic and why do you think that aesthetic has kind of risen collectively in prominence? I think they're classic pieces for a reason. I think commercially businesses are pretty smart to tap into that staple aesthetic where you know that someone's going to want to buy a classic white shirt or a really nice pair of cigarette black pants it's a bit of a bold move to put out a collection that's made with really um, zany colours because you are only appealing to a certain person and that is not always going to be a large market and so you, you do sort of um, open yourself up to being left with a whole lot of dead stock that no one wants to buy whereas I think people can feel safe in knowing that there's always going to be someone that wants to buy a more classic style. But yet we do in the ethical fashion sort of space, we do need to be careful that that's not all that we're offering. Through my work at Ethical Clothing Australia, I work with people like Veronica Main and Q Clothing who they have a bit of the best of both worlds. They have some really classic items that you would wear to work and then they also have some really fun party dresses and they've got very signature prints of loud florals or what have you. Um, we also work with the social studio and the social outfit and they're sort of well known for their vibrant eclectic pieces. 
So it does exist, it's just a matter of more of them existing and coexisting with people that offer more classic, sort of typical ethical fashion styles. What will it take for ethical fashion to be much more affordable to the point where it can compete with a chain store or fast fashion? Will it ever get to that stage? Well, I hope not, because we've been seduced into believing that we're entitled to a $5 T-shirt or a $10 pair of jeans, and the bottom line is is that that hasn't been made ethically and it's not our right to have a whole lot of cheap clothing. That's something that we've convinced ourselves over the years that we're entitled to that, and we're not, and we can't just expect people in developing countries to be living and working in really poor conditions just so we can feel good about ourselves aesthetically. But I would also say price point does need to be more accessible and in order to do that and get to that more middle ground, the scale needs to increase so that there is a larger demand for it and that bigger brands are investing in you know, manufacturing processes that are ethical and more sustainable. So it's that balance point between knowing that what we have right now is not okay but also knowing that not everyone can go in and spend $300 on a shirt. So it's a, yeah, it's a fine line. Do you think that there is a way that we can still roll out trends but still produce in a way that is sustainable? I think you need to look at the fashion calendar and what it is today and what it was, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. We've always had trends, but now things don't really trend for very long. So in a way, they're not really trends. They come and go so fleetingly that back in the day, you had four seasons for the year and everyone stuck to that same calendar and you knew that you weren't going to be having pre-season collections or, you know, capsule ranges that came outside of those seasons. And I mean, maybe seasons altogether are redundant. I I believe that you should be buying things. Well, you know, you should, but people um, should consider buying things that are trans-seasonal and that aren't dictated by trends at all. And we do have some really great businesses locally now that are starting to offer sort of smaller um, scale capsules that come out or only releasing one garment at a time throughout the year so that thing can really sing on its own and people can really appreciate the craft of that one garment or that selection of garments that's coming out. But obviously that's on a very small scale side of things whereas once you get to the larger fast fashion brands they're coming out with things daily almost with huge shipping containers of clothes coming into Docklands. But yeah, it's a really tricky thing because in order for something to be sustainable, it needs to be durable. And a lot of these fast fashion labels, while they may be releasing a really beautiful classic white shirt that someone might want to wear for a really long time, it's just not built to last. And this built-in obsolescence means that something is wildly unsustainable to begin with. So the aesthetic of sustainability may be there, but the actual craftsmanship isn't. If we get to a point where brands are making higher quality pieces but are still following trends, can we have both these things? Can we have our exciting seasonal trends? And I think so, as long as you think about the life cycle of the garment and what happens to it after you decide that it's no longer trendy, if trends happen to mean something to you. I mean, you can wear something for a short period of time, but if it's just going to go to landfill, then that kind of defeats the whole purpose of something being sustainable. So... I think if you only want to wear it for a short period of time, make sure that you're being responsible in how you get rid of that garment, whether it's taking it to a consignment store and while you have it, treating it with respect so then it still has life in it for someone else to use afterwards or take it to an op shop, but be mindful of the fact that op shops are sort of busting at the seams and so they can't take everyone's crap, so it needs to be laundered and well-made and well-cared for developing countries no longer want to take our old clothes anymore not even as rags so we really just need to be mindful of yeah that life cycle and what happens after you get rid of something that's no longer in trend 
So the other day I went online and just informally polled some people about their thoughts on ethical fashion because I know there's heaps of people out there who have an interest in this and they want to put their money towards something better but they feel excluded by ethical and sustainable labels so I wanted to find out what exactly they were feeling excluded by. And some of the issues that came up were things like there's not enough of a size range, especially towards larger sizes. Mm -hmm. What we said before, you know, things are maybe a bit too classic for their style. And I just wonder whether you have a perspective on that as to why some brands are not able to or, you know, don't want to, for whatever reason, produce larger sizes. Yeah, well, that's a whole other beast in itself. <laughs> I think that's not just the sustainable or fashion spa- um, ethical space, but it's just fashion in general. And fashion loves to make people feel bad about themselves and has a very, very strict beauty standard, um, whether that be age, race, size. So I would love to see more brands offering larger garment sizes for people who want to do the right thing by the environment, the right thing by the garment workers. And I think that's coming. I, I do think that we're really at a beginning now where people are realising that there is opportunity there to produce more mindfully and to appeal to the growing ethical consumer market. But in order for the fashion industry to stop excluding people, I think that's a much bigger conversation. Um, But yeah, I don't have an answer to that. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, the pressure's on the brands. Yeah, and it doesn't seem to make sense to me why you wouldn't want to produce garments that sell. And the reality is, is that a lot of people aren't a standard size 8 or a standard 8 to 12 or whatever you usually find in a store. Why wouldn't you want to sell garments to people who want them and who will buy them? Without it encouraging hearing Sigrid talk about fashion doesn't have to subscribe to one aesthetic, that we can have all of the fun pieces that we don't have to subscribe to, like the five-piece French girl wardrobe, which I just don't find exciting at all. Yeah, I think, like, realistically, you're not going to be able to entice everybody into ethical fashion if you only have this one particular type of aesthetic. Um, And we didn't really delve too deep into what that aesthetic is for people who don't know. The aesthetic, I think, a lot of it is kind of shapeless and very tent-like. Oh, yeah, let's talk about the cuts. Because you talked about the colours and stuff. The colours. But the cuts are very, like, it's a boxy-fitting top or a loose tent-like dress that uh, disguises your body shape, whatever shape it is. Um, It's also like a wide-legged culotte, usually cropped, and a cocoony jacket, maybe. Again, disguises your body shape. It doesn't always work on everyone's body type. In theory, it fits everyone. Not necessarily looks flattering on everyone, but it fits. And so from a design perspective, like I feel like, Amy, you can shed some light on that as to why small labels might only cut in this certain way. Why are they not cutting to a more tailored shape? Um, so there's a few reasons. The boxy top... Some some designers do say that that is a more zero-waste efficient design because it reduces the amount of wastage of a fabric. If it's literally a box and you're sewing in, like, three sides, you've you've got no extra little bits of scraps. Mm. So that's, that's one reason you're using up as much fabric as possible. But then also the other reason would also be that making a tailored garment takes up a bit more time. You have to hire a, a fit model or if you can't afford a fit model you would use a mannequin and that takes up a little bit more um, sampling time as well you might need to make a few samples of the garment to get the right fit 
and and a tailored garment at the end of the day there's no guarantee that it's going to fit all body shapes because it's being made to fit one fit model's body from that perspective it feels like you might be cutting out a lot of different body types so a a loose a-line maybe boxy top can at least accommodate can at least accommodate many different body types but that then takes out like flattering a body and actually looking good on a body um, even though it might be safer Mm. yeah it's a tough call and i mean i think if you're a consumer this kind of just doesn't sound good enough you just want to get something that looks good on you you want to if you're someone who wants to throw your money at ethical fashion labels and you can't find something that suits your body or that your personality you're just like do better. Yeah. I, mean, I can understand that from a consumer's perspective. And I want to say that with some of the problems with sizing, because quite a few people commented on the post that I wrote saying that they can't find their size in a brand that they like, or they are put off from buying certain brands because when they look at the marketing, they don't see people who look like them. So they just think, oh, that brand doesn't cater to me. Um, and I think that's like a problem on the brand's end with their marketing. Like if you are indeed catering to a wide array of sizes and shapes, then you need to reflect that in your marketing so that people know. And, you know, you need to like cast models that range from 6 to 14 and above and below. Like it's just like a no brainer, really. Mm. Um, but mm-hmm. because fashion is so reliant on creating a certain dream image, you know, some brands want to look lofty and exclusive and out of reach for a certain part of the population. That's why the marketing. Oh, that's so gross. I know. It's it's, it's a it's a f- it's a fashion industry wide um, problem, not just an ethical fashion problem. It looks worse, I guess, because an ethical, sustainable brand, in theory, should be more inclusive and more accessible. Yeah, they're already progressive. So yeah. why are they progressive with diversity? Yeah. It's just like a good business decision, too. Yeah, to be able to make everyone look good, that just sells more clothes. <laughs> There's definitely a lot of people who are like, take my money, I wanna I wanna support you, I wanna spend money correctly, but you're just not making me look good. Yeah. It's um it's definitely not an excuse. But I think for a small business, as, which a lot of these locally made labels are, it can be a huge cost and again it's a risk. Yeah, and I think you have to remember that local labels the designers aren't doing this full time in a lot of cases. You know, we both know of designers who work who work well-paid jobs on the side just to just to support their business a lot of the times your margins are still quite slim and you're really just you're really just breaking even um, at least at the start and if you if you can get through those first few years of just breaking even um, even after that it's not like you're making a huge profit yeah I mean unless you're a label who's really chasing global fame and Thanks. you want your reach to extend all over Australia and overseas and in which case you need investors mm. you know you need that's a, lo- a lot a of these businesses aren't necessarily looking to scale to that size these labels don't maybe don't want to scale up because that's not ethical in the, and sustainable in their view you know mm. they don't want to pr- produce that much clothing mm. and um and scaling up opens up more issues in regards to uh, ethics and sustainability it gets trickier to um, trace all of um, your supply chain as you get bigger yeah well for one thing if you need to produce more clothing then you're probably going to have to go out of australia Mm. You're probably going to have to produce overseas because we don't have the factory sizes to back it up here. Yeah, so, you know, you'd have to fly over to check everything and, you know, maybe have someone who speaks a different language Mm. um, be your in-between person. 
Um, but I think it's interesting to note that local design didn't always go for the classic. There was a period of time, I would say, in the mid-2000s um, in Melbourne when this shop called Alice Euphemia was open. Um, and Alice Euphemia was like a little incubator for young designers. It was a place where you could get your you know, small runs of your labels stocked. You know, you're exposed to a city, city audience, so you don't have to spend money opening up your own store. And this is kind of before online retailing really took off. Um, so it was a place to find really interesting, quirky pieces from local designers, and they had that safe space to do so. But Alice Euphemia closed in 2014 and Fat closed not too long after. Fat was another independent store that stocked a lot of emerging labels. So when those two stores kind of went down, young designers lost faith and had to rethink their business model and had to maybe pare back their designs to make sure that they were commercially successful. Yeah, it's definitely definitely a shame, but also a smarter business model. When Alice and Fat closed, they were on their own and had to sell in their in their own stores or online. And um, or some just stopped or took a break or, yeah. or folded even. So it was definitely a hu- a business choice to pair back. So despite the fact that we're both criticizing the aesthetic to a degree in this conversation, I will I really want to say that responsible fashion has really never looked better because I remember a time before many people cared about buying ethically, there was a time when eco-fashion was a thing and that was kind of like strange, hempy... Very unsexy. Unsexy, <laughs> loose, strangely cut uh, stuff. Eco, eco-fashion eco um, just brings to mind like hemp, tie-dye... People and with dreads. hand felted crocheted things. Yeah, yeah, very homemade kind yeah, of aesthetic. Yeah, very crafty. Very crafty, but yeah. Um, it doesn't look like that now. No, and I think it, thanks to some labels in the early 2000s. So, for example, we had Gorman. So Gorman's been around since 1995, but it was in 2007 that Lisa Gorman decided to do a Gorman Organics range. Yeah, definitely ahead of its time. I think if it had launched now, it would have a lot more traction. I think so, because I was reading an interview where she said that she didn't make very much money from the Gorman Organics line in the first couple of years. And Basic as well, that Sydney label that does Basics, um, they launched in 2006. Shortly after they launched, I think they started making organic organic cotton jersey t-shirts. In case you're wondering about the difference between organic cotton and conventionally farmed cotton, um, organic cotton farmers don't use pesticides and any of those chemicals on the crop, um, which is better for the soil in the long term. It doesn't exhaust the soil and make it unusable. Also, not using these chemicals and pesticides means these chemicals don't leach into the ground and potentially contaminate water sources and it means that people um, working to harvest that cotton won't be exposed to the chemicals. Thanks for listening to Smart Casual. We're continuing the rest of this discussion in the next part of this two-part episode. Smart Casual is recorded at the Sin Studios at RMIT University. Music is by DJ Baby Bangas and editing by Emma Doe.